Well, good morning, church. Good morning online, and good morning here in person. Uh, my sons, a couple of them anyway, have studied engineering. I have a son-in-law who just received his engineering stamp, uh, Andrew McLean, born and raised in Penobscot, and uh, I remember when the boys were doing their first year, uh, usually down at the end of that year, they have a final assignment called the Rube Goldberg machine assignment. And uh, there's a picture of a Rube Goldberg machine here behind me. And uh, a cartoonist actually invented this whole concept of a complex series of parts uh, working towards an eventual unified ending. Um, usually it performs some sort of task at the end, kicks a shoe to turn on a light or something like that. But if you want to get an A plus in this final engineering assignment, uh, it has to work. And they set it up, usually in the big gymnasium at the University of New Brunswick, and it, you, you hit something at the very beginning and it goes through, and maybe it may have to have 25 different steps in the Rube Goldberg machine. And I got to thinking, you know, that's an interesting opening story for really what the church is about. Uh, we have been given a particular task, and God has brought us together, and he has said, work together so that that which I have begun at the beginning may go through a series of tasks and get to the ultimate end, which is uh, the kingdom of God, and unity is required in order for this to happen. Have you ever stopped to think about how diverse a group of people we are? We are very diverse. The church is a complex mix of personalities, passions, problems, and peculiarities. I remember, I remember where I was when I heard somebody use the term idiosyncrasies. Fragrant in high school in the gymnasium, and it was the coach of the basketball team, and he said, we have a bunch of idiosyncrasies. And, uh, and I thought, like, what is that? So I looked it up, and there are specific things that are true to us all, and whether it's cultural or whether it's how we're wired, and God puts all of that together in a spiritual Rube Goldberg machine known as the body of Christ. And yet, we have been in existence here doing the will of God for 25 years, and how we were able to do all that we were called to do is only the goodness and the power of God. And the reason why so much is done, even though we have come from so diverse a background, is because of a work that is supernatural. The Bible calls it unity. It is not something that you can wake up 
and decide that you will add your part to the mix and do successfully. Because you may choose to do so, but the part to which you are to be linked in this series of events, they may not be interested. And so, and then when they are, you may not be. And so God sees all the parts like a body and brings it all together so that that which has begun at the beginning fulfills a promise that is a supernatural work. Christian unity is defined as this. It is a supernatural work of God in which diversity, diversity among believers is used to fulfill the purposes of God in the world. It's diversity that is difficult uh, from one puzzle piece to another. You know that you, you turn them around when you're making a puzzle, and God is saying, I'm the only one who can put the puzzle pieces together. It is a spiritual work. It is a supernatural work, and it is the second to the last of two themes that I want to finish this chapter with. John chapter 17 speaks about unity. And it says this in John 17, just before we come to the end of the chapter, next week will be the end, Jesus says this. He's not saying it. He's actually praying, and the apostles are watching him pray. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, speaking of the 11 who remained there, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, Father, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love me, love them as much as you love me. And that's quite a love. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am, then they can see all the glory you gave me because you love me even before the world began. So I want to talk about the power of a unified church. And I've said before, I wanted to start with this. Worked on it, worked on it way back in August. And the Spirit said, I've got some things that I want to share with the brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters, Neville. And it took like, what, four or five sermons to get to this point. And now I feel free to share principles about the power of a unified church. The first principle is this, that the basis of unity comes from the message of reconciliation. And what you could say there, what is the message of reconciliation? The message of rec reconciliation is the message of the cross. Jesus says, I'm not praying, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Now, there's a ton that I could teach on related to all who will ever believe in me. Jesus 
is looking down the corridors of the future, and he sees he saw you. He saw that person who was under that tree in 1128 on a Thursday at 4 p.m. He sees that person uh, at this year in January at the YMCA swimming in the pool, doing laps, wondering about whether the faith of their spouse should become their faith. I mean, that's a pretty, for all who will ever believe in me through their message. And something of that message of reconciliation will impact their hearts, not intellectually, but a foot and a half laid lower into their heart. And that message of reconciliation between God and sinful humanity will impact them and will translate into something about their horizontal relationships. I am praying for all who will ever believe in me through their message, and it is the message of the gospel. It is the message of reconciliation. And what brings people to God is also the basis of why people are to be with each other. Think about that. What brings people to God? God being proactive, and there's a distance between his holiness and their sinful humanity, but God breaches the gap through the bridge we call Jesus. He took the initiative, and so our bonds and our separation from one another, because something has happened into our hearts, becomes the basis, because God doesn't require of his own that which he has not done himself. It becomes the basis, the message of reconciliation of why we are proactive in our relationships with each other. So the basis of unity comes from the message of reconciliation. And every great movement begins with this. It amazes me, even the unchurched, even those who do not claim to be followers of Jesus, how they want to use the message of reconciliation, the cross, the love of Jesus, of giving himself. He, they will often use Jesus as the basis for what it is or the movement that they follow. You may not know this particular date, 5.17 p.m., January the 30th, 1948. It jumped out at me because for five years in Majorville, we had our service at 5.17, but on January 30th, 1948, that was the day that Mahatma Gandhi was shot and assassinated. He, was, he fought for li the liberation and the independence of India, and people didn't like it. But Mahatma Gandhi speaks about the message of Jesus, although he wasn't a follower of Jesus. He spoke about the methodology of Jesus in his desire to bring independence to India. They didn't like it. They shot and killed him. A number of years later, 20 years exactly, uh, on April the 4th at 6.05 p.m., Martin Luther King stood on the balcony in Memphis, Tennessee at the Lorraine Hotel, and he 
perhaps the most prominent of all uh, movements spoke about Jesus, was a preacher of Jesus, was a Baptist preacher of Jesus' message of nonviolent confrontation, and they shot him dead there 20 years later. But it was the message of reconciliation that Martin Luther King felt was the one thing that could bridge the divide. See, understand, people want to snuff out the message or the means by which reconciliation takes place. Martin Luther King said of Chicago, where I served in my first ministry, they said that Chicago is the most segregated city in America. There I was, contemplating by phone, by letter. Remember when we used to write letters? I'm sitting there thinking, like, okay. And it was a real issue, but because reconciliation puts your feet on the ground. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, here I am, contemplating. I want to marry this woman. And I'm thinking, okay, Jesus, uh, have you stopped to consider that she's a white lady and I'm black? And... Uh, and I threw that question out to him because I knew that there may be some trials coming our way. And you know what he said to my heart? He took me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he gave me this particular verse, right around verse 17, 18, and 19. He says, At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. There's God bridging the gap. And God has given this task of reconciliating, reconciling people to himself. And God was in Christ reconciling the world, bringing the two opposing positions apart together, reconcile the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And here, here's, here's why he said, yes, I need you to demonstrate in your marriage what is true in the cross. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Bringing the two opposing parties in a city, and he said, what I have done on the cross, I need you to demonstrate to people. It wasn't an issue in my culture where I grew up, nor was it an issue in hers, but it, as you know, it is constantly a, a source of tension. And God wanted us to demonstrate that. And verse 20 finishes up. It says, so we are Christ's ambassadors. Christ is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. And so we live that out. We live out the message of reconciliation. You live out the message of reconciliation. And that is the foundation of how a church begins working towards unity. Another thing that I notice here from this particular text is that it's not just the basis of unity that comes from the message of reconciliation. But the building of unity draws people back to God. 
It draws people back to God. Listen to the text, 21 and 22 of John 17. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. People are looking for truth. They're looking for a way that meets something deep down inside. And when the church is united from all these different backgrounds and peculiarities and idiosyncrasies, when there is a oneness, because we see that God did it with us through Christ, therefore we do it with others, when we work towards unity, it draws people back to God, so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Why do we even bother building unity? Sometimes we have it, sometimes there are challenges, and we don't. We bother building it because unity has an evangelistic benefit because unity acts as proof for the existence of God. Biblical unity does what other groups in the world, when you go to your work, when you go to your school, when you go into your relationships, when you look at your neighbors, unity does things that other groups can only dream of. Other organizations may dabble with unity superficially, but the Holy Spirit makes it a reality. And it draws people back to God. You may be wondering why I have toilet paper, a mug, and inside that mug, I've got a mousetrap. Forgot it to use the mousetrap. You know, it's a symbol of unity of parts. One part in a mousetrap doesn't work. None of it works. But people are looking for something that they can't get in everything else. And this, this, is, a, this is a mug that I've kept, and, uh, I mean, it's chipped, and it's used, but we did an advertising campaign at one of the church churches one time, and we gave about 300 of these out in our neighborhood. And uh, on the front, it says uh, the name of the church, and it's a place to belong and a place to become. A place to belong and a place to become. You know, welcome to our church. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, that's what unity does. We're looking for a place to belong. We're looking for a place to become. We, we want more in our lives. It doesn't happen in the regular place. The only place it can happen is by the supernatural power of God. What's so noteworthy is in this prayer for unity, it corresponds with Jesus' prayer for the increase of new converts. And uh, it's as if he anticipated the threat of division 
and conflict as more and more people respond to the message of hope found in Christ. People who have been known to hate each other are now coming in and expecting, expected to be family through Jesus Christ who is able to forgive their sins. As God draws people from every geographic place on earth and from every social group imaginable, unity is what keeps the evangelistic drive going. Therefore, Jesus prays hard for unity because unity is evangelistic. And when people see a unified church, they don't even need to see it. When your church is unified, God sends out a sense that you need to belong to that place. I remember doing a wedding just two or three weeks ago, and some people who don't even come here, they said, oh, you're that night, you go to, you're at that nice church. And you may feel that you've suffered these, these last number of years, and you're thinking, what's happening? But God, God knows how to keep his reputation. And I am among a whole bunch of unchurched people, people with whom I've had relationship before. And it's, oh, I heard that you're back. Oh, I heard about that church. And God, when you work on unity, you don't even need to advertise yourself, okay? He just sends out a FOMO. That's what he does. That's what he does. FOMO, the fear of missing out. Now you know why I have the toilet paper. Okay, remember when the pandemic began? And everybody was like rushing to Costco. Get your FOMO. Do not be left without toilet paper. Okay? And we're all like, now, if we're honest, everybody had a FOMO moment. And I bet you in each and everybody's house, maybe it's just Campbell's soup. You're thinking, I heard there's not going to be any soup. And you ran out FOMO because FOMO stands for what? Let's say it together. Fear of missing out. And Costco advertises that way. If you don't get it now, you will never get it. And so people rush and, uh, you know, we, we've got the toilet paper FOMO. But you know what? God does that spiritually. And when you work towards unity, and you're thinking like, how did Joe get here at the church? Like, Joe is sitting there thinking, you know, there's a sense of belonging there. I know I'm missing. I don't want to miss it. I think I'm, and I'm not going to tell anyone why I'm showing up. Now, we know biblically what God does. He creates a FOMO. He creates a sense of belonging. He sends that out as advertising. I don't want to miss it. Just like toilet paper in the physical, God creates a FOMO spiritually. That is why you need to work towards unity. Because you won't even have to put on programs. I have seen people in places that have been unified where I've pastored, they just show up. No programs. I'm thinking of Mark. Mark sits in the church at Penobscot, and Mark just showed up. And I asked Mark, so like, what was it that brought you? I woke up this morning and felt that I just needed to go to church. The last time he was at that church was when, remember in the old days, they used to have like boys' brigade? Brigade? Like, I'm going back like 30, 40 years. 
Mark was in that program, and he remembers the name Austin Yeomans, who taught him Boys Brigade. He hasn't been there in a long time. He wakes up, boom, shows up in church, has been there ever since. See, that's what God does. He does the advertising for you through a sense of belonging. People don't want to miss it. Takeaway point. Some of you don't come to this place for two reasons, and, well, there are three reasons, two of which um, I'm okay. And you know people, if you're here live, and those of you who who are listening, and there's an issue of conscience. I called it a Romans chapter 14 thing. And although we've been trying to make this place as safe as we possibly can, according to health rules, some of you don't come because of an issue of conscience. It's an issue of conscience. That's okay. Some of you don't come because you have a health concern or because you just don't think we can make the place safe enough. And nervousness is a distraction to worship. That's okay. But the people I wish to address are those who stay away because you got offended. You got offended for whatever reason. Now remember this, and I say this as your brother in Christ, we need you back. Why? And those of you who are alive, you need to remember this point. We need you back, as I speak to you online, if you're listening, so that the Holy Spirit can restore in this place that feeling of FOMO, that feeling of spiritual belonging of God's presence, which is needed if people far away from God are going to be brought close to him. Like, it's a very practical thing. The Spirit sends out that sense that you need to belong to that place when we are united. You don't have to worry about programming. You don't have to worry about, okay, let's put on this and let's put on that. God just gives that as a result of unity. That's why we need you back. Uh, And so you may think to yourself, like, what about my hurt? I'm not saying the hurt isn't real. And I'm not saying that a sin hasn't been committed. But the scriptures teach us how to deal with each other's hurts. The scriptures teach us how to deal with, with sin. Okay? But you say there's so much hurt over the years. But remember this. Remember what God did in the parting of the Red Sea. This is the verse that Moses declared after he destroyed the enemy. And your enemy isn't your brother and sister in Christ. Your enemy is the, is the forces of evil. That back there in that story were Pharaoh and the chariots. And the Bible says this. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders. 
Why do I say that? I say that, and you've heard me say it before, because God can do in five minutes what we cannot do for ourselves and what we cannot do for in the hearts of others in five decades. Let God be God. Your heart has been hurt. Indeed, we, we know that. But we need you here for a greater reason, an eternal reason, a reason so that the Spirit can send something out into this community. And that is, you need to belong to that place because building unity draws people back to God. I want to just stop just at this moment just to say a special prayer. And that is a special prayer uh, for Hertz. And uh, brothers and sisters who are here, Brothers and sisters who are online, let's just pause. Let's just pause. Father, we know that you ask us to pray, even in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Lord, we are praying for ourselves. We are praying uh, because, Lord, there is pain. There have been offenses but for a greater purpose. For those who are among us who don't know Jesus, even in our own family, we need you to work that power of saying to their hearts, you need to go to that place because you're missing out. And so for that reason, without condemning anybody, without saying, well, it's all in your head, we know that there are real hurts Give us what we need that we might forgive. Give us what we need that we might be a church united in purpose, united at the foot of the cross. Lord, we are not a people who sweep things under the carpet. That is the wrong motion but we are a people who take the things that are so easily swept under the carpet, and Lord, we take those things and we put them at the foot of the cross. That is the motion of a believer. We don't sweep, we place at the foot of the cross. And so, Father, help us to feel the difference. And we ask that you would bring healing, that you would bring unity, and that power that is so magnificent without program, that out of your mercy you just send out from this place. Help us to see the connection. And we pray this in Jesus' name. The final point, and I'm not sure of these three points, the reconciliation that we model in our relationships. We see it on the vertical, and then God asks us to do it on the horizontal. And then there's this point of God selling or, 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 or advertising who he is and people being drawn so that the world will know we are unified. And I'm not sure if this third point is, is even more magnificent. But it, uh, you read this stuff and you study this stuff and you think, I am not worthy to... Have that beautiful nugget. But let me just, the third reason why there's such power in a unified church is because the beauty of unity 
is the inexplicable love of God. So there is the basis of unity. There is the building of unity. And here we are talking about the beauty of unity. It's inexplicable, but it is something. It is the love of God. And as I read this text over and over and over, there is something as to the complexity that melted away, and I saw a truth that I had never seen before. Let me just read it. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. But it gets a little more complex than that. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. Now, if you try to break that down mentally, okay, as you are in me, so Jesus is saying the Father's in me, and I am in you. And just kind of, if you had a bunch of babushka dolls, okay, remember those Russian dolls? You open one and you get a smaller doll. You open that one, there's a smaller one. Okay, and you're trying to put this down on the table and you're trying to figure out what does I am in you and you are in me and then it says at the end they are in us and, and, and what Jesus is talking about and it just hit me with incredible like precision and I had to write it down there is an abstract concept here that Jesus is describing trying to understand it logically has led people into heresy and damnation None of the biblical authors seek to explain that particular abstract concept. And what I'm speaking about is the whole concept of the Trinity. You and me, me and you, us and, us and them, and they and me. Okay, And it's, it's, it's an abstract concept. The preoccupation with this concept has led millions into cults. Where they say, well, maybe Jesus is created. Or maybe the Father uh, is limited. And they get themselves into a whole bunch of problems because they're trying to understand this whole three in one. We accept God as three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, although it makes no sense. And then I said, fortunately, head knowledge is not the purpose of verse 21. Jesus is not communicating head knowledge, but words of the heart, his intimacy, and oneness with the Father in and through the Holy Spirit. This inexplicable dynamic reflects the intensity of that love, not its complexity. Jesus is being poetic. He is stating a truth, but in our humanity, this whole three-in-one, it doesn't really make sense. We accept it as faith in faith, and we know that God in three persons is our eternally coexistent. And I'm not even sure if our eternally coexistent is the right grammar, or is eternally existent. We are monotheists, but God reveals himself in three persons, and we accept that. And what is going on here through this concept is Jesus is describing the intensity of his love, not its complexity, as if it's meant to be understood. So he's being poetic. So I went to the most, some of the most poetic statements I could find 
on saying, I love you. And this is what people have said. Eric Overby says this in his collection of poems called Legacy. He says, I end where you begin and begin where you end. You are my earth's horizon and the axis on which I spin. Now, I'm thinking like, Eric, just say I love you. Now, but, but, but some things, in order to, to get to the intensity, you can't say the obvious. Another one, C.L. Fowler, in his book, The Best Things I Ever Had, no, sorry, The Best Things I Never Had, he says this, I wanted to write some words you'd remember. Words so alert they leap from the paper, crawl up onto your shoulder, lie by your ears and purr themselves to you like baby kittens. But it was rainy, so I laid there and daydreamed about you. <laughs> I love that. I mean, like if, you're, if you say this at the right moment, like you're going to have your girlfriend or you're going to have your boyfriend forever. But really, it's really about just saying, I love you. But I want to say it more intently than that. Here's another one. Like a child who saves their favorite food on the plate for last. I try to save all thoughts of you for the end of the day so I can dream with the taste of you on my tongue. <laughs> I love it. I just think, now that's intense love. Here, one more, because I was just like, I said, Donna, if I said this to you, what, she'd say, I know that you love me. And it's like really intense. One more. Oh, actually, I don't have any more. But <laughs> I'm looking down here. I thought I put four. But the point is that some things are so deep that you can't say them in just normal language. And so when the Bible scholars have said there's this three-in-one concept, that's what Jesus, that's what the authors through the Holy Spirit, this is what they're saying. God reveals himself to the world as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not to mystify or to stupefy, but to magnify something about himself. But that's not even the greatest point. Listen to what Jesus prays. I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And then he says this, may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, you know, get this, so they may be one as we are one. The greater thing isn't just this incredible statement of intimacy between the Heavenly Father through the power of the Spirit and Jesus but he has invited us into that. When Jesus is there on the cross and he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? There is a break there that if you understand it properly, it should hurt you. You should feel the broken fellowship between a holy God and the one from whom he had never been separated, Jesus. There is a closeness there and the Bible says that we 
have been invited into that closeness. And we have been invited into that closeness without bias, without discrimination, without being, you know, there's the love between the Son and the Father, but I can never attain that. Without being considered a second-class citizen, and this is the glory, and it's glory. Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. And because the glory that Jesus had is now given through salvation to us, there is an ability for us to enter into that intimacy. He meets our deepest need to belong, not because we request it, but because he has invited us into it. We haven't requested it. We're not banging down the door and he says, okay, come on in, second-class citizen. No, no, no. He initiated it. He wants us to have the same intimacy that he has had in the Godhead. I remember as a kid really, really wanting to go to that birthday party. And finally, the invitation came. I always wanted to be picked first on that ball team. And finally, the sense of, of welling up, of feeling that I belong because I was picked first. Or being asked by mom and dad, not because I was frightened, but because they invited me in as a little boy into their bed. See, all these things come at a deep level when we're young. Because this is what God wants us to remember when he draws us in. This deep sense, you belong here and I want you here. Isn't that precious? So when you work at unity, you experience something of this inexplicable love of God that, that emphasizes not its complexity, not to stupefy, not to mystify, but something of its intensity, the love of God you get to have. And so Ephesians chapter 3 Paul's prayer, he understands what Jesus had said. Maybe he had seen it some other time, but Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 3. May, he's praying, may you have the power to understand all, as, as all God's people should, how wide and how long, how, how deep is his love. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. This is what we are supposed to have as a result of unity. That'll change your life. So there is power in unity in ways that you never, ever thought was possible. That's why we all need to work. That's why online, that's why together we need to work at being a united church. So what is the ultimate purpose? What is it that I want out of my time here? Ultimately, it's not more people. It's not more money in the coffers. It's not like, let's get a bunch of ministries going. No, ultimately, what I want, ultimately, biblically, what I must need is for us to all be looking in the same direction, to be transfixed on Christ. 
But what does that, what does that, what does that do? Well, I'm not sure if you know about the sunflower. And picture, this is what our goal is. Forget programs, forget more people, forget, you know, forgiveness and all that kind of... No, all we're going to do, close our eyes, we're going to fix our attentions on Jesus. And what happens is that a, a sunflower seed, or a sunflower, it actually moves 360 degrees. And when the sun goes down over the horizon, that plant continues to have its focus below the horizon through the night. It's still moving. And then when the sun rises, it's still transfixed. It has the ability to kind of swivel 360 degrees. And that's what we need to be as a congregation. All the byproducts of our focus on Jesus, they're, they're secondary. But our primary reason and where everything gets aligned is we are putting our focus, you know, from the rising of the sun to the setting of, of, of the same, let our eyes be focused. As a field of sunflower seeds, let us all look together to Jesus, who is the author. He is the perfecter of our faith. And then if there are benefits... We'll give you glory for that too, Jesus. Band, if you could come, we're going to close. The power of a unified church, the basis of unity, the building of unity, the beauty of unity, and we give you praise. Father, we are grateful for what it is that you show us, and we ask, Lord, that you will glorify your name here. And we surrender ourselves to be transfixed, not looking at others, but transfixed on Jesus. Take us through, Lord. Show us what it means to be united as a people of God, focused on Jesus. And we thank you in your name. Amen.